Hey, Eric Goldwine here from LTCCC's Nursing Home 411 podcast. Up next, we have a great conversation with Kathy Uncino, a nursing home reform advocate and psychotherapist who for decades has worked with residents and staff to strengthen the foundations of long-term care settings. In the interview, Kathy shares some of her experiences working to empower residents and staff, and I hope you'll come out of this interview having a better idea of what's possible when we believe in the individual's capacity to grow. Here's our music by Silverman Sound Studios. Kathy, it's great to have you on the Nursing Home 411 podcast. It's good to be with you again, Eric. So for our podcast listeners, uh, you might remember Kathy from some of LTCCC's past programs. Uh, She's spoken about transforming nursing home culture, combating ageism in long-term care. And these are absolutely important uh, systemic issues, but This conversation is going to focus on the individuals, and that is the residents. So, Kathy, can we start by clarifying the difference between the individual and the systemic challenges? Obviously, we need systemic changes along overdue, but I find that approaching it from the top down, from the larger down to the specific is actually not a productive way to proceed because we need the rules that are there. We need certainly better enforcement. But what we find in the many nursing homes and continuing care retirement communities in which I was consultant, that the nursing homes don't really often know how to provide the best quality of life and quality of care for the people who live there. I truly find that working directly with residents and staff really can convince uh, even the most hardened skeptic that nursing home residents are able to do so much more than anyone envisions. And the direct care staff are able to be heroic and even more wonderful than many are if given the right incentives to work. Right. And when we spoke a, a few days ago, it kind of, I mean, you said the bottom up, but in some ways the residents are there. They're also, you could also think of them as, as, as the top, right? They are the top. They are the cornerstone that the builders rejected. Uh, they, become, they are the cornerstone. But unfortunately, the way nursing homes operate, they're really regarded really as at the bottom of the system. They're supposed to be And the whole system, the federal government, the state government, departments of health, are supposed to primarily honor the well-being of each person. But instead, as we saw with COVID, it was really protecting the industry. So I, I really think it's so important for the public to discover, as staff and families have discovered, all that nursing home residents are capable of if given an opportunity to grow, to be nurtured, to become all that they can be. Yeah. And let's talk about building this foundation or strengthening this foundation, or maybe repairing the foundation that we have systemically weakened. How do we go about doing that? Well, I try in each nursing home to erect a kind of human scaffold to lift the weight of the institution from residents and staff. And uh, I've done that really by 
meeting with residents in a group and meeting with staff on all three ships in groups uh, because it really empowers them and strengthens them. So typically 70% of the residents have significant cognitive challenges and 30% significant physical challenges. And yet when you put them together and you begin to participate with them in groups, they immediately get it within minutes. Uh, a formerly rebellious and uh, depressed group of residents become animated, warm, begin to address each other by name. The staff, I remember the first time I did it was in 1995, where within minutes staff appeared at the door, their mouths wide open, amazed to see the residents talking with each other, laughing with each other, speaking, uh, beginning to discover who each other is. And they were amazed. And following that first meeting, by the way, it was the head nurse who, and I did this just as a volunteer visiting someone in a nursing home on the 4th of July, 1995. Uh, she came up to me afterwards and she said, you know, the staff and I experienced the residents so much easier to care for since that first meeting. They're happier. It's the place is humming. Can you do this again? And that's how I started. I started doing it every week uh, for months and months pro bono. And the residents, staff, and families eventually created a beloved community. It was extraordinary to see humans who felt so depressed and oppressed and just dispirited, to see them blossom and grow is just a very rewarding experience. And then to see the same thing happen with staff was extraordinary. So what you get with the current system is staff are told what to do by people who don't know the residents and staff don't even know the residents. So when you help staff get to know he, who each resident is as a person, everything changes. What you just said made me think about a, uh, an anecdote you told me about, uh, we'll call him Dave the Grunter. Uh, hey, can you explain this, this story? And to me, it, it stands out because it, not to spoil the story, but it uh, demonstrates the importance of knowing the residents and how that can help both the resident and the staff and the community. Uh, it occurred, Eric, in a suburban nursing home, but it was before I had even had an opportunity to meet with residents. Here's what happened. I went into the first meeting with evening staff, and before I could even open my mouth to ask the question I usually ask of all staff, the head nurse on that floor said, look at what we have to deal with. Look, look at Dave the grunter. And she pointed to a man who was pacing up and down like a caged tiger, just pacing within a short distance back and forth and making unpleasant sounds with his mouth, grunting. She said, you have no idea how awful this is to hear this day and night. That's all he does is grunt. So I said, well, what do you know about him? And she said, what's to know? He grunts. I, I said, let me, let me just look at his chart for a minute, if I may. She handed me the chart as if it was uh, just so annoying that I would even take time to do that. And I read the first sentence to all of the staff, which read, Mr. So-and-so was for 30 years, the mayor of X town. And the staff gasped. They said, the mayor of, and they knew the town. I said, tell me about the town. Oh, they said it's the next town over. It's a working class town. I love to go there. It's where kids all go on their bicycles to get ice cream. 
It's like no chain stores. It's mom and pop stores. Everybody knows everybody. And I said, oh, so Dave was the mayor for 30 years. I imagine he walked up and down Main Street and people must have said, hi, Dave. And he would greet each person by name. And they said, yeah, it's that kind of place. So of course I didn't have to spell out for them. He's pacing here in a place where no one knew that he was the mayor for 30 years of this very sweet, appealing town. So immediately the certified nursing assistants, um, her name was Olympiada, said, you know, I feel terrible. I'm his CNA, certified nursing assistant. I never knew he was the mayor. I feel terrible. I said, well, what do you want to do? She said, I want to leave the meeting right now and just go right down now as he was pacing and tell him I didn't know he was the mayor. So I said, well, why don't you do that? But come right back. And the nurse said, yeah. Anyway, we watched as Olympiana went down, approached the man. And as soon as she spoke to him, he stopped pacing. He smiled. He started patting her on the arm reassuringly and just smiling and smiling. And you could see her gesturing. And he nodded and smiled and she pointed to us. She had to go back to the meeting. And as she left him, he went to sit in a chair, stopped pacing, big smile on his face. She turned and waved and he waved back. And she came back and said to us, he kept telling me, don't feel bad. I know you didn't know. Uh, yes, I'd love to tell you about when I was the mayor. Uh, yes, I, you know, just, she said, oh, I didn't know. I wish I had known this. But the staff having no knowledge of who each person is deprives them of their, their humanity of how to reach out to a person. And yeah, that's a beautiful story. And it's a theme with this person. Uh, I hear versions of this when we speak with uh, relatives and loved ones of residents that people want to be heard and want to be understood and perhaps may have difficulty communicating due to uh, cognitive barriers, due to language barriers, uh, just due to the settings that they are living in. How do we get around those barriers, both as the, as the resident, as a family member, as staff? When families bring their loved one to a nursing home, they assume they're entering a partnership with the nursing home, a partnership between the residents and the family and the nursing home together to help this person have a good quality of life and quality of care. But we see the opposite happens. It's not a partnership. Imagine during COVID, the industry moved to prevent family members from visiting their loved ones. It's hardly a partnership. You know, they're really in charge. Uh, and in charge of influencing government officials to enact policies that are actually adversarial to what nursing home residents need. That's why I'm saying that to really proceed with transformation primarily from the top down before people are ready to really see what residents, families, and staff on their own are capable of achieving will be uh, with a disappointing result. You're not going to get there. CMS doesn't even know. CMS has the rules, but hasn't enforced them because they, like nursing homes, like the industry, don't have the faintest idea of how to bring about quality of life. So even though it's in the Nursing Home Reform Act of 1987, what I'm trying to do is help nursing homes discover how to be able to uh, function in a way 
that not only is in the resident's best interest, but is in the best interest of retaining uh, and strengthening a quality staff. The institutional uh, way of operating, even vis-a-vis -vis staff, is so oppressive uh, that there's a tremendous shortage. I guess you, the, the audience must be aware of this at this point. There's a crisis in nursing homes. Not only have residents and staff died, but staff are leaving in droves. Occupancy is down. And the only way to attract good people is to not only pay them a living wage, which is very important, but to treat them like humans worthy of respect, like the professionals uh, that they really need to be vis-a-vis -vis the, the nursing home resident. So unless we change from the bottom up, no matter what we do from here, uh, it's not gonna work. Uh, good staff get burned out. They can't stand being ordered to do things that they know are inhumane and that is counter to many of the cultures from the countries from, from which many of the staff have come. So we need to help them be their most humane selves and get to know each resident as a person. People know Kathy as a passionate advocate for, for individuals in long-term care, uh, but she's also a psychotherapist and works closely with people having trouble in personal relationships, uh, feeling stuck, whether it's in their lives or in their careers. And me from the outside see, sees and understands this and makes the immediate connection to how you uh, relate to residents and relate to staff, uh, but can you talk about uh, how those two, because it seems these are two kind of separate careers that, that have a lot of connection to each other. Well, it, you know, it's a, a very thoughtful question, Eric, and it's the first time anyone has ever asked me that question, uh, but it's a very natural fit because as you said in therapy, people come because they want you to help them lead uh, more fulfilling lives. They're stuck, okay? And so when I go into a nursing home, rather than prescribe something, right, I talk with the residents, gather with them in a group, uh, help empower them, uh, help, help them begin to talk about what they want in life and how they can get to know each other better, how to enjoy each day. Uh, so it's kind of a, a natural outgrowth this is what good psychotherapists do. They engage with the person who came, uh, uh, help foster uh, their belief in their own powers, not underestimating themselves, belief in their own powers to heal, to grow, lead more fulfilling lives. And that's what I did in nursing homes with residents. And they responded in group, you know, uh, verbally. Also, I introduced singing because uh, with the cognitive loss that so many people had, I found that music was still very, very strong within the soul. So when residents started singing, this land is your land, this land is my land, you know, from California to the New York Island. And I would just cue one phrase in advance. They were singing with fervor. If I had a hammer, if I had a song to sing, I'd sing it in the morning, I'd sing it in the evening, I'd sing it all over this land. Residents singing these beautiful songs um, uh, just spring forward and uh, began to plan um, uh, wonderful events with each other. And the staff were inspired. This is the point. Staff not only got to give much better care of residents, 
in a much more warm and related way because they got to know who each person was. Uh, but they came up with their own initiatives. It wasn't from top down. So for instance, Sandy Myers, a social worker in one of in the first nursing home in which I worked, just was on fire with it. She's an ombudsman now um, in Westchester, I think. Yeah, a friend, a friend of LTCCCs. Okay. Yeah, she's she was a tremendous resource uh, in in helping us get to know who each resident was as a person, meeting with the families so that we got to know the histories. Well, anyway, Sandy also initiated a newspaper on the floor, and they called it Our House. And families were interviewing staff, and we had in each issue uh, a resident of the month, a staff person of the month, uh, memories. How did you celebrate Christmas? What's your favorite Hanukkah memory? What's your favorite Thanksgiving memory? What's your favorite New Year's memory? What's your, you know, and so article after article, um, people looked forward to the issues of the newsletter. Staff mailed it to their families all over the world. Staff would come up with things, residents, families. Uh, one uh, wife of a man who lived there, Rhoda, uh, did beautiful things uh, when we had our first Thanksgiving, for instance. And uh, she created a place card in calligraphy for each resident. And you say, oh, why didn't she just do it on the computer or something like that, you know? Well, Rhoda did this beautiful artwork and resident after resident picked it up and said, oh my, with his name on it, can I keep this? Can I have this? It was so precious to see his name on this thing. There was a, one um, woman, when you talk about psychotherapy, uh, Sandy was a social worker, not a psychotherapist, but in the same mold, okay? And there was a woman she was assigned to be the social worker of, who had had uh, both legs amputated and significant parts of both hands. And she had been a very sharp bookkeeper, but was now suddenly in a nursing home, unable to walk on her own, depressed, anxious, always with the call bell, the call bell, the call bell. And Sandy, instead of commiserating about her plight, Sandy would go and say to her, Mrs. So-and-so, tell me about yourself. Oh, what's to know, you know? Well, I, you know, tell me about your life. All right, I can speak five languages. That and a token is not going to get me on the subway, is it? Sandy says, five languages? You know, not, not buying into the negativity. What languages did you speak? Oh, English, um, Hebrew, uh, whatever, Russian. Russian. And, and the woman said, oh, Sandy, leave me alone. Uh, what's, what's with you? So Sandy would say, you know, we have Russian housekeepers here. And they're dying to learn English. They can't go shopping for shoes for their kids. They don't have the English words for it. Uh, Sandy, I was a bookkeeper, not a teacher. Leave me alone. Sandy comes back a few days later. You know, I was thinking they really said they'd love to meet with you. Uh, they get a half hour lunch. And then Sandy would say, what do you have to lose? Try it once. If you don't like it, I'll never bother you about it again. Just try it. This is okay. Turns out. The woman was extraordinary, loved it. The uh, housekeepers loved meeting with her. They started, she had a syllabus of all the words, but they also joked with her. They brought in Russian foods that she loved, that they cooked. And that half hour every day, she taught them English. So here, instead of commiserating with the woman's sorrow, as a good social worker helps her to find her strength, and this woman begins to teach and feel I have a place here, I'm, I'm making a difference in their lives. 
And that's what we want nursing homes to be in addition to care, help each person not go from oblivion to obscurity to oblivion or whatever, but to each of us find, where can I make a difference? Where can I use my voice? How do I make friends? How do I have fun? You know, and when the staff gets it, there's nothing that holds them back. Yeah. And you don't have to start uh, going crazy retaining them. They're happy to work there. It's sacred work when you do it right. Yeah, a, in my notes here, I have the phrase, a belief in people's capacity to grow. And I, th I think if there's buy-in at the resonant level, then everything can just sprout from there. That's, it's, it's very true, Eric. It's very true. And, and also for the staff's capacity to grow, as they find they're not just obeying orders, but coming up with new, beautiful ways of working. It's contagious. It's beautiful stuff. And, and you can't put the genie back in the bottle of 19th century uh, oppressive management, it's now glorious. You're forming, uh, you know, really a beloved community. Uh, it's our podcast tradition to close our interviews with guest recommendations. We have two of them and you can go in whatever order you want, but one recommendation doesn't need to do with long-term care. It can be a book, a movie, a painting, a TV show, an activity. And then the other one, should have to do with uh, long-term care. So what do you got for us, Kathy? Well, one of them uh, is uh, Norman Cousins' book, uh, Anatomy of an Illness. It's a marvelous, it's just a very slender book uh, written by a man who was a physician who had uh, a terrible disease himself and how he experienced for the first time, how as the patient, how important it was to partner with the doctor. Uh, and, and he says in it over in, be in beautiful language, far more beautiful than mine, how don't underestimate the power of each of us to heal, regardless of what diagnosis we're dealt. That's one. The other is, I love this one, Barbara Tuckman, March of Folly. Uh, she's a historian who talks about how civilizations collapsed because they were really following the wrongheadedness of the elite and the empowered. Uh, who kept really uh, destroying life for the person. So when you want to talk about systemic change, I urge uh, listeners to look at uh, Barbara Tuckman, The March of Folly. And I, I love this book, Elder Grace by Chester Higgins. Higgins was for many years an extraordinary photographer for the New York Times. And uh, he has put together this beautiful book, again, featuring all the people, elders, and uh, with a beautiful forward by Maya Angelou. And in aging, it's by far the most beautiful book I've ever read. And so I urge the audience to go out of the long-term care sphere, to bring inspiration into it, really to sustain us, to nurture us, and to inspire us really to do all that we can. Thank you so much, Kathy, I appreciate it.